Good morning, church. Take out your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to uh, be this morning in our meditation on the scriptures. And before we get into that, I want to let you know about a very important information meeting that's happening right after this service, right in this room, uh, a program that's about to start that I can almost totally guarantee you that your life will be changed if you embrace uh, this particular discipleship program. Colson Fellows is going to be a, um, we are now an affiliate church of Colson Fellows program. It is intensive discipleship. And uh, today, 1230, right here after the service, I encourage you to come. It's just information today. Find out more about this amazing program, uh, discipleship opportunity. Um, do you need a challenge in your faith? Maybe you've like, man, I've heard lots of sermons, devotionals, Bible studies. I've done a lot of that sort of thing. And I'm ready for maybe something a little more. This is it. Uh, you'll be challenged in ways perhaps never challenged before. Um, you want to know what's going on in our culture right now and the whys behind what people do? Um, very much of that is what we will be discussing. Um, so anyway, I could go on all day to tell you why you should embrace this, but at least just come and check out the info meeting. Just find out more about it. And maybe someone you know uh, would really benefit from this study. So join us today right after this service at 1230 right here in this room. Um, okay. So... We start a new series today, Help My Unbelief is the title, and it comes straight from a statement made in the scriptures, straight to Jesus himself. We will actually look at that particular account uh, in a couple of weeks, I think it, even next week maybe. Um, but today we're going to start with a man named John the Baptist, and I know you are all familiar with uh, him uh, from the scriptures. In Matthew 11, John is, uh, it says that, Jesus is, uh, that John is in prison and he's arrested. Uh, because he was a holy man and he was preaching the word of God and he was setting up the ministry of Jesus to come and introducing the Messiah. That was his whole role uh, according to the Old Testament and his life. And he preached against the leaders of the day, repentance, particularly Herod. And Herod was in a relationship he shouldn't have. And, and John was preaching at Herod. And Herod had this really weird reaction to John the Baptist. He, he, uh, he, he kind of liked it. He liked John the Baptist preaching. Uh, he enjoyed listening to John preach, even though John would totally preach at him and his personal uh, sins. Uh, so Herod had this weird relationship with John the Baptist, but uh, he arrested John and uh, put him in prison um, and then let John speak to him even in prison, um, but wouldn't kill him because he feared him and sort of a respect-fear kind of thing of what would he do if I did and that sort of thing. Sort of a weird relationship. But this is where John is. Uh, this is the context uh, for our text today. John is in prison and, and Herod relating with him in this way. And in verse 1, I'm going to read verse 1 all the way down to 6. I encourage you to go and read the whole chapter because there are some things uh, that Jesus said about John the Baptist to finish out the chapter that I think are pertinent, and I will actually include some of that in the teaching this morning, uh, but go check those things out. For the sake of time, I'm, I'm just going down to verse 6, okay? So let's, let's read together and meditate on God's Word. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? 
And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to guide our meditations here. Father, we just uh, commit this time to you. We thank you for this text. We thank you that it's, uh, it's not just a text. It's actually a text that points to an actual event and actually points to an actual man and a heart of a man and a situation. And you have it here for our good and our exhortation. And so as we lean in and meditate, do a work in our hearts. Meet us where we are. Take us where you want us to be. Make us more of what you want us to be. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, in today's passage, John the Baptist is doubting Jesus as the Messiah. John the Baptist, a very devout man to God, ate locusts and honey, a specular diet, a holy diet for a holy man, um, wore camel's hair. Yeah. Um, you ever had a haircut? And you got hair in your collar, guys, particularly. And those little shavings, they drive you nuts all day long. Imagine a whole shirt of hair. Uh, yeah, that's suffering right there. And, 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 and John, in his calling as a prophet and a holy man, wore it. Why? To embrace suffering. Suffering is not foreign to John the Baptist. He knows suffering very well. In the wilderness, he lived out suffering as a part of his call. Um, and... He said things about Jesus. He preached the word of repentance to people who could kill him. He was not afraid. He embraced suffering. Um, and John, seeing Jesus earlier on multiple accounts, said, Behold the Lamb of God. In one account he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a few days later he sees him again and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he proclaimed this boldly. He said to himself, that the Spirit of God has told me that when I see the Spirit descend from heaven upon a man, that's going to be the man, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah of God. And I have seen it with my eyes. He is the Messiah. And later on, uh, the, Jesus becomes the, the one who takes on the mantle of the gospel ministry. He has to take a side step and say, Jesus is the reason I was, whole, I was here in the first place. I was just here to announce and sound the trumpet and tell everybody to go to him. Now I'm done. I must decrease. He must increase. Uh, and I'm fine with that. That's his thing. He is the one. Um, but now things have changed. John is in prison. And he sends messengers to Jesus and asks this question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? And the bottom line here in this account is that John is doubting Jesus as the Messiah. And what once was something very bold and strong and he was totally sure about, now he's showing signs that he's not totally sure about it. And there's a lot of things that trouble us in this passage, and it also makes us interpret the passage in ways where we feel like that just can't be. You can't have John the Baptist doubting Jesus. It's just not the way. He's just so bold. And so how could he be? No, so it has to be something like, um, you know, he sent the messengers to ask the question so that the messengers would see that he's the Messiah. 
Or maybe, or, or there has to be some other explanation, but the bottom line is Jesus saw John as doubting because his response to him was, blessed is he who does not um, fail on account of me, stumble on account of me. In other words, Jesus, Jesus clearly saw John is doubting me as Messiah. There's no way around it. So here we have John doubting. Um, and so what I want to do with the text, I want to get busy into the helping you. Um, we can look at John a lot, but I really want to take what John is going through, and I want to talk about doubt, and I want to help you with the biblical sense of how to help you in a season of doubt. So let me just jump right into it. Um, maybe, maybe you are in a season of doubt, and that's why you're here this morning. Great, you're in the right place. Um, but you know what? The, the fact is, is that perhaps most of us, not, if not all of us, are going to have seasons of doubt. And we need to uh, process that doubt in healthy ways. And there are unhealthy ways to process that. So that's why we're here this morning. That's what we're really looking at in this particular text. So let me unpack some helping points and help you. I want to get straight to the help. Uh, and so, so here we go, okay? Dealing with doubt. Let me just open a couple of things here. First thing is acknowledge your doubt. Acknowledge it. The very first step to dealing with our doubt is coming to a place where we stop trying to sort of tuck it away, right? Because you have an initial sense of doubt kind of coming into your heart um, as you're trying to walk with the Lord, or maybe maybe you're, um, you know, I don't know where, where you would be, but as you're trying to walk with the Lord and you experience some doubt well up in your heart, our Number one way of responding to it is to say, whoa, I don't like that thought. I don't like that feeling. i got to reject that away. i got to you know, think about the Lord, think about other things, and just sort of tuck that away in a closet somewhere and shut the door and lock the key, you know, and all of that, and, and avoid it and hope it just kind of goes away, right? I mean, that, that's a natural reaction to having thoughts and feelings of, of doubt. Who knows how long John struggled with the thoughts he was having about Jesus in prison. But whatever was happening, he finally actually did something with them. He finally actually had to come to the place where he had to decide to send messengers to ask Jesus if he indeed is the Messiah. I mean, like, you imagine the process it takes to come to the place where you're asking him that. You're, you're revealing yourself a little bit. Um, it means that John finally dealt, dealt with his doubts that he was thinking. He didn't just let them exist. He started to actually deal with it. You know, doubt can creep in sometimes, and we feel it. We tuck it away, try to avoid it. But with any problem in life, the same is true with doubt. You have to stop. You have to look at it in the face, call it what it is, and acknowledge it within you. So acknowledge it. And as you acknowledge the doubt within you, acknowledge a couple of things from our text here. Number one acknowledgement is this. If John the Baptist struggled with a season of doubt, then it is possible that anyone can struggle with a season of doubt. Can we just be okay with that? After, John, after, after John's disciples were sent back by Jesus, Jesus goes on this whole thing about John being the greatest man who's ever lived on the planet. He says he's least in the kingdom, but he said but he's the greatest man on the planet. After Jesus sent the messengers back saying, blessed is he who's not offended at me or stumble." in my offense, he actually praised John and says, John's the greatest who's ever lived. I'll tell you what you saw out there in the wilderness. You saw a great man doing God's work and God's calling. And Jesus is sitting there talking him up, and Jesus knows he's doubting. 
And so we can first say, if he can doubt, then any of us can doubt. We can experience seasons of doubt in our lives. If he can, we can too. And we need to just acknowledge that. So if you're experiencing a season of doubt, don't beat yourself up. That just might make it worse. But do acknowledge it and just stop just hoping it goes away, all right? Turn it, face it, call it what it is, and know if he had doubt, you do too, and it must have a purpose, and I don't have to freak, right? Secondly, acknowledge this. John's doubting did, is not condemned by Jesus. Think about this. Not only is John praised after the messengers leave and go back, uh, he's talking highly of John, that Jesus is giving him space to process in a struggle of something that's happening in his heart. And there must be a process with doubt that Jesus is allowing here and still not thinking less of John at the same time. He still thinks highly of John in John's doubt, and there must be space for a person to wrestle with doubt. So let's at least begin the process of dealing with doubt by acknowledging that it's there, it doesn't mean I'm condemned. Jesus didn't condemn John. He could have easily said, hey, John, what's the whole behold the Lamb of God thing about? Oh, now you changed your mind, huh, you traitor? You're out. Jesus didn't do that. He could have. He could have said, how dare I was standing there, flesh and blood, saw you, the spirit came down and sat on me, and you're asking me this question. Right? He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because you hear Jesus saying, there's space I give you in my grace to process this. I do not condemn you. I, he did not condemn John. He did not write him off. He was merciful and compassionate to him and understood something about the condition of his heart and gave him space here. And so it doesn't mean we're condemned or that you're a bad Christian or even a Christian at all or any of that sort of thing. So you don't have to freak. You can acknowledge it. It is what it is, and it's happening, and it's in my heart. I can acknowledge it. Secondly, be patient with your doubts. Be patient with your doubts, okay? If you look back, there are probably moments in your life where you had spiritual highs, mountaintop moments we could call them, where God met with you in such um, undeniable fashion that your heart was so full of faith and so full of confidence um, and then you can also acknowledge that there are also other seasons of your life that are more like valleys than they are mountaintops, right? And we can all say that we know that we have those type of things. John had those moments too. John had a mountain peak moment where it was just all like almost reality and he didn't even need faith. <laughs> it was just total confidence, total reality, immersed in the Spirit of God and His reality and what He's doing um, in the world. And, and, and then seasons change. And you know, life is full of seasons. And there are mountain peaks and there are valleys. And you have to understand that. Listen to this. Doubt is very likely a temporary struggle. I can't say that without, with total confidence for every situation. But I can say that it's often the case that a season of struggling with doubt is a temporary struggle season it is a valley but guess what the peaks do come back they do they don't last forever and so it might just be a season so don't let impatience 
with doubt get the best of you in it. And here, let me say this. Never make big, quick, and I have to apologize for something. I looked at this out in dripping, and I went, I'm sorry, y'all. This is me. I put a comma after make. That was horrible. Sorry for you English teachers. I'm sorry. I failed. Uh, but never make big, quick, and that's me because they copy and paste. That's it. So it's not the boost. All right. So don't go talk to them. It's me. Never make big, quick, permanent decisions to solve problems in a temporary season. Amen. Let me say it again for you young people. Never make big, quick, permanent decisions to solve problems in temporary seasons. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and you've got the dragon tattoo on your lower back as evidence. <laughs> now, you can do that with your skin. Don't do it with your soul. Be patient. Be patient. It is a season. There is some processing involved. It might take time. Doubt may not go away quickly. It might not. Don't set your expectation that if I just pray, it's going to be gone. Or if I just do this and it's going to some magical formula to it, you are more complex than that. God is more complex than that. There is a process. There's relationship. There's a process of processing things in our own soul. There's growth. Lots of things that come from this. So don't set the expectation that it must be gone. Now, it might. It might go away. It may be that you're not praying, and you pray, and it's gone. And all of a sudden, God shows himself, and bam, it's all gone. It might happen, but I'm saying don't set that expectation and get impatient with it. Be patient with doubt in a season of doubt. Thirdly, express your doubts. Express your doubts. Now, think with me for just a moment. John, you're John the Baptist. You have made some bold proclamations. People come to you for advice. Rulers, you are very well known. You are a spiritual leader. You have proclaimed publicly that the Messiah has come and you gave him the mantle and you stepped aside. And now you're in prison and you are overwhelmed with the thought that the guy you gave the baton to might not be the guy. Can you imagine just a little bit that John would at least give a few thoughts about sending messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one? Because don't you see, this is me acknowledging that I got it wrong on all kinds of levels, and I don't want to go there quick. Can you feel that? That John himself probably did a lot of processing before he decided to flip the switch and send messengers to Jesus with such a question that is completely opposite to what he proclaimed earlier in his life. Surely he hesitated and wanted to hold this in a little bit. But you know what? At least John said something. And at least he said it to the right person who wouldn't hammer him because he was having such a thought or having such feelings. He could have just stayed silent. He could have just struggled silently. But he says something. He sent the messengers with the crazy question. And probably did this when they came back and, and they're getting him a reply. What did he say? I can imagine he didn't receive that well. We don't want to really open up our doubts to God, right? Why? What if he is real or not? You know, 
what, what would happen? I can imagine that you, your, 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 your initial instincts are to just, oh man, just put a lid on that thing. Don't let anybody know. Let me say this. Isolation could be the biggest contributor to seasons of doubt in our walk with Christ. You stuffing it down, don't tell anybody, keep it to yourself, it becomes a beast. John was in prison, almost total isolation. And he was forced into isolation. But how often we isolate ourselves from deep belonging in the church. The means by which God has on the earth for our faith strengthening. And we isolate ourselves from the people of God and expect our doubts to go away. One of the main purposes of the church is to encourage you and strengthen your faith and strengthen you in the faith. And God's going to do that through the other people in the church. And you know what that requires? That you would have a trusted brother or sister that you could actually share that you're struggling with them. And they can come alongside you and encourage you and strengthen you and be patient with you and help you process with you. That's what we exist for. That's why we're here. And yet our instinct is to go, don't you tell a soul that you're having these thoughts. Also, in a season of spiritual struggle with doubt, you can feel like you're the only one that's ever faced this stuff. Surely none of these other people have had these thoughts. Surely none of these other people have struggled with this. Surely you're the only one. No, we've all had them. And we're all for each other, and we're all helping each other in these. In fact, doubt can be a, a process of growth for us, and we need each other. You need each other. We need the church to help us in this. And, you know, sometimes you think you're the only one, and then you know how encouraging it is when you open up and you share with someone, and then three other people pipe in and go, had the same thing 17 years ago. God got me through it. It's all, and all of a sudden, your doubt is shattered by the experience of someone else encouraging your heart by what they went through 17 years ago. They're still walking in the faith. They're still strong, and they had the same bout you did, and you're in it right now. It's so helpful to know there's somebody that's been through what I'm going through, and they're just up the path, and I can make it through. There's encouragement there. There's strength there. But, but, but consider this. Express your doubts the same way John did. Send the messenger of prayer straight to Jesus. Go to him. He won't condemn you. He won't write you off. He will be patient. He will understand. He will point you. He will say the things to you that need to be said to, sit, to center you right where you need to be in your soul. He will respond to you. We're going to deal with this a little more specifically in a few weeks, but it really, really is very painful for a preacher to put off a really powerful point to preach right now on another week. It's the itch. i got to go there. I feel it, and I can't. And it's, oh, I want to say it. But I'm 100 convinced. I'm going to say this. I am 100% convinced that prayer is the main weapon that kills the beast of doubt in the heart. Prayer is the tool of God for you to take the concepts of your faith and to concrete them in your soul. The process of your soul becoming ironclad 
is prayer. And yet, how many of us remain prayerless in trying to solve our doubts? And yet, the one tool we need is to pray. And I'm not talking about, Lord, would you bless the food? I'm talking about opening your soul, getting with God, and saying everything that needs to be said, as embarrassing as it might be to God, go to him, find that place. Now, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Man, see, I just, I just went a little bit and I can't stop. So I got I to, gotta, okay, in, in three weeks, in three weeks, I am going to unpack that. And I know it's going to be a, a surge for your soul. Please don't miss three weeks from now. All right. But at least John said something. He sent the messengers. He sent them. He sent him, he said something, he expressed it, he did it, right? Fourthly, source your doubts. Source your doubts. Uh, we can look at John and see that he, he probably had multiple sources of doubts in his current context that were fueling doubt, isolation obviously. But a couple of things, let me list a couple. One, pain. Pain. John is suffering in isolation and has been for a while. Pain will make you second-guess stuff that you once were absolutely committed to. Amen? Pain will cause you to question. Pain does that. It very much does that. Second reason for John might be the distance of Jesus. Um, look at this. Earlier in Matthew, he, he accounts this. He says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it's, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested... He withdrew into Galilee. And that's almost hilarious. Because you would expect that verse to say, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he came to the prison where John was. But he went to Galilee, which is the other way. Now if you're John and you hear, I'm arrested, what, where's Jesus? Oh, Jesus went fishing. I mean, that's literally what you hear. What, if you're John the Baptist, you just got arrested, Jesus goes the opposite direction to Galilee, what are you thinking? I'm, I'm out. I guess I'm, I don't care. You know, I don't know. The distance of Jesus probably played into some of this, perhaps. Then messianic expectations that John may have of his culture in that day. The popular teaching of the day was that the Messiah would be born to rule and to reign. He is going to rule and reign in government fashion. And he is going to reign on all the earth. And what the Old Testament prophets saw from a distance was this glorious kingdom that reigned on all the earth. And it was total and it was complete and it was beautiful and powerful. And it all came from this Messiah. And they saw it all as one thing. It's kind of like, I've heard it explained, it's brilliant. If you're going east to west in Colorado and you're approaching the mountain ranges and you see them way off in the distance. And they're, they're way tall, but you can tell they're way off. And all the peaks are just kind of like this, right? It's like a big road. Right? And then uh, the closer you get to them, the one, you realize there's some that were really close within an hour, and there's others that are like three hours away. Um, all of them, but all of them were together at one point. Well, they say the, the Old Testament prophets saw the kingdom of the Messiah as all one thing. They didn't see all the details of how it all actually plays out, the church age, the gospel age, and all of that. They, and many of them, they, don't, they didn't really know how to interpret the Old Testament until Jesus fulfilled it. And then they look back at the Old Testament and go, that's what that meant. Okay, so there's things that are being processed out in real time. But what John is thinking is, when's he going to make his move? 
when is Jesus going to stop hanging out with the lepers and the sick and the blind and the deaf and the dead? When is he going to rally the strong moral people, the religious leader? When is he going to rally us? And when is he going to make his move to reign and rule like the Messiah is supposed to? He's not doing that. And why not? When is he going to do it? Perhaps his own expectation of what the Messiah is supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it is causing him to begin to doubt that Jesus is actually the one. And look what Jesus said to John. This is what he meant by this. I believe very strongly. Jesus said to John, John, don't, don't look at your expectation of what I am supposed to be according to your expectation. Look at the miracle. He could even say, the spirit descended on me. Look at the miracles. Undeniable. Blind see. Deaf hear. Lepers are healed and cleansed. The dead are raised. God's validation is upon me. Don't hold me to your expectations of what you think I should be. Look at the miracles. Don't look at your circumstance, John. Don't, look, don't think about what you think I should be. Look at the miracles and trust me. Look at the miracles and trust me. This is Jesus' prescription for John's doubt. Look at the miracles. Undeniable. Undeniable. So a good question to ask when we're struggling in a season of doubt. What kind of doubt am I experiencing? Where is this doubt coming from? I want to give you a couple of types very fast, and then we're going to be done. Okay? First common type of doubt is intellectual doubt. We're going to deal with this really heavily on week four, so stick around. But most of this uh, doubt, intellectual doubt, is an is a evidence-based personality. And we all are this at some level. We are all looking at things and asking, how reasonable is that? How reasonable is that? Am I connecting the dots? Does that make sense? Does that, does that align with reality? We all do this, right, um, at some level. But some of us are so given to the reason and the logic of things that it might cause us to doubt when we're forced to a realm where we don't like to go, and that is trust. We have to trust things we cannot prove to live our lives by, to make choices according to. So just a quick word here. Sometimes an intellectual doubt is coming from the fact that we are requiring proof from God that he will not provide us. Okay? So why won't God provide it? Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Your reason and your intellect can help you in your process of seeking after God. It does align with faith, but it is not faith. Your reason leads you to faith. Reason, on the path of reason, you'll go right up and you'll follow reason, reasoned arguments and then you'll come to a cliff. And from this point on, it's trust. And leaving reason, the path of reason and where it's steered, you have to trust. You have to trust things you cannot comprehend totally. You have to trust things that you cannot prove. And you have to trust God to walk with God, to know God and know yourself. And by the way, there's not a worldview structure out there that you can go adhere to that doesn't require that. Every worldview, even atheism, all requires tons of faith 
Everybody takes the leap. It's whether you can do that with God in Christ. So just know your reason is a very good tool, and it is not contrary to faith. It's just not faith. It can take you to faith. Okay, so dealing with that just a little bit. But intellectual doubt, there's good people who have all the intention of really being a truth seeker, and they don't really mean to be against anything. They're just skeptics, and they take the reason this far, and then the problem they have is they can't, they, they may get to that place where they can't, they can't trust, and they have lots of doubts because they can't figure it out. It's not controlled. It, that, that, that is what intellectual doubt will do, okay? Um, so intellectual doubt. Secondly, emotional doubt. Um, people who, this is not about intellectual, this is not about logic, this is all about feeling. I'll give you a couple examples here. People who feel hurt by other Christians or a Christian. And this person hurt me really bad. They were rude, they were angry, the things that they did to me or did, you know, I just didn't like. Um, and it caused me to uh, doubt the validity of the whole enterprise because of their action toward me. And that is an emotional doubt. Someone has hurt me deeply, and they are a part of this faith, and because of that, I doubt the validity of the whole thing. Here is Jesus' response to John that fits that. Don't look to people. Look to the miracle. Am I who I claim to be? People can behave in all kind of hurtful ways, even Christians. Oh, yes. Amen. Right? All of y'all said an amen in your heart. You know it. Christians can be hurtful. Don't make that the basis of your faith. The miracles. Am I who I claim to be? A third of the globe agrees with the statement, Jesus is Lord. Look at his impact. No other human being has ever walked the planet, has the impact, not even close second to Jesus Christ. Not one. That is supernatural. That is not natural. Look at the miracles. Jesus is saying, look, look. Look at the evidence of the resurrection. Look at the reality of the resurrection. Look at the miracles. Don't look at people. Don't look at people. Now I hope, I hope you can look to the church and the people in the church and it encourages your validity of the faith, right? But that's not always going to be the case. The behavior of people can be hurtful. Look to the miracles. Let me keep going here. Uh, people growing up in a home that claim that Christianity as their faith but lived hypocritical lives. So a kid growing up in a home where they see their parents living two different lives. They, they, uh, they, they say they're a Christian, they go to church, but then they live their lives like this. And it's just a, a hypocrisy. And kids growing up under that, seeing all of that really real, they leave that home and they struggle with major doubts in their faith because of the hypocrisy of their parents. What would Jesus say to that circumstance? Don't look to people. Miracle. Am I who I claim to be? You know it's true. Look at the validation of me and my person. God's validation is upon me. Look at the works I have done. Don't look to people. But that is a common, common source of doubt in the hearts of many people who really want to follow God. But the hypocrisy of their parents or a, hypocrisy, uh, a home that was just very hypocritical. Um, or even hypocritical Christians that we're related to or close to. It can very much be a source. Jesus said, look to the miracles, not to people. People who are hurt by life circumstances. Um, this is another emotional, emotional doubt that kind of creeps in. I am facing hardships in life, and the pain is causing me to doubt God's existence. Pain will cause you 
question things that you were once so confident about. But what does Jesus say? John, look at the miracles, not prison. Look at the miracles, not prison. The good thing is, John, if I told you your future, you would not be encouraged. You're going to give up your head for me. Don't look to prison. Look at the miracles. I have never, I have never guaranteed you a safe outage of prison, John. Don't let that be your expectation. I have never guaranteed you anything. You're going to lose your head. But you know what, John? You're going to lose your head, but you're not the only one who's going to get arrested. You're not the only one who's going to be rejected. You're not the only one who's going to suffer and have hard times. I will suffer and I will die. Don't look to your prison. Don't look to your circumstances. I have never guaranteed you that you're going to have pain-free existence in this world. Never. I have only said the opposite. You will have many troubles in this life. But I have overcome the world. What you can know is it's going to be okay, John. You're going to be with me forever. And you have fulfilled your role. You've fulfilled your duty. And I as well. People feel that God let them down. You know, I've been good. I give. I go to church. I pray this. I pray constantly, and this terrible thing happened in my life. Be careful. This is the religious expectation of God, that I deserve good things in my life from God only. I only deserve the good things. And Job even said to his wife, do you remember this? Shall we not take good things and also evil from God? In other words, hard times pain. I only deserve good from God because I'm good. Be careful of that religious spirit. We'd actually deserve nothing good from God. And every good thing we have is a total gift of grace. We actually deserve all of the opposite from God. So if we saw it in reality, but, but let me come back to this. Jesus said, look to the miracles. Look to the miracles. Don't look to your goodness your religiosity, the amount of good things that you've done, and set expectations for me that I have to meet for you. Look to the miracles. And trust me. Trust me. So all of this is sort of bundled up into the category of emotional doubt. Those are just a few examples. There are others. Then uh, there's some theological doubt. As you grow in your faith, you're going to come to places where you're going to keep connecting dots. The Bible is a beautiful, complex, powerful document that God reveals himself to us through, and you can walk with God in that. And you come to these places in the pathways of the scripture, and, um, and, and, and these, these, these are connecting. And you find a hard time in your mind connecting these two themes. And they're not connecting in the Bible, and it causes you to wrestle. And some of you might be even grinning because you've come to some of them places, haven't you? Um, how could a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? coming to this thing. He's a good God. He's a holy God. And yet there's evil and suffering. And how do I pull those two things together? Well, the Bible does extensive work on all of that. Just start in Job. Uh, 
I mean, there's all kinds of places where the, this dynamic is woven together in tapestries and helps us process. There's, there's no doubt about it. The Bible deals with this, but there are questions that will not be answered. God never answered Job. He never gave him an answer. You know what he said? Where were you <laughs> when I did all the things that you don't even think about? Where were you when the goat gave a birth to another goat and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, you're right. That's not. Job just ended up saying, I put my hand over my mouth. I repent in dust and ashes. Where do we weave this together theologically? Here's where you do. You say, that's true and that's true, but he is good and I trust him. But you know what? You got to trust him. <laughs> theologically, you could probably have doubts at those points that these things don't seem to line up, you know? Uh where does God's sovereignty and man's moral agency come together? Y'all okay? Glad you came. Where does that come together? I'll tell you where it comes together. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Who knows? The Bible doesn't connect those dots. Doesn't necessarily try to. Doesn't live there. It has incredible things to say about God's sovereignty. It has incredible things to say about repentance, our choices in the matter, all of those types of things. You know what? At some point, theologically, you have to say, I trust God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and our children to do them. You see, there's a whole lot that God hasn't revealed. Are you okay with that? Yeah, you should be. How exactly is God one God and three persons at the same time? You already unpacked that one this morning? We've got to go to lunch. Well, the, the Bible has all kinds of good material there for us to, understand, to, to, to at least apprehend it, not comprehend it. Okay? Let me ask you this. How many of you in the room, we got some, we're in a tech city, so I'm, I hesitate to ask this. How many of you in the room, if you can comprehensively explain to me everything about how Google works? All right. I thought, yeah, see, I thought one of you would raise your hand. Uh, but you can tell me everything down to the bits and bytes of how Google works all the way through. Probably many people at Google can't even explain it. Totally. How it connects with electricity. Why it needs electricity. All those questions. And yet, you want God to give you all those answers of himself. The creator of the universe. Would it, are we, are we okay in admitting the fact that if God is the God of the Bible, there is probably an infinite amount that we can never know? And are you all right with that? But there is an amount that he has given us to apprehend and we are to apprehend what he has said and live according to it and trust the things that only he can know that he hasn't revealed what he has revealed is ours and that we're to live by those things and what he hasn't he hasn't i trust him so there is theological doubt but you still have to trust moral doubt i've seen this one more than any other a Christian who starts making sinful choices in their life, the flesh becomes powerful, and you guessed it, the flesh is powerful, the spirit's weak. They isolate themselves more and more from church. They probably get into groups that are influencing them in other ways. Doubt is just 
overcoming them. Absolutely, this is probably the one I see more than anything. I see a person that I know is so totally committed to Christ, and then all of a sudden, over a period of a year or so, they I, I don't see them as much, and I wonder, well, how are they doing? You know, and after a year or so, I go and I check on them, and uh, marriage is on the rocks. Usually, it's a you know some type of affair that they've tried to get into, and I'm listening to them across the table, and I go, I don't even know who this person is. They're totally different. Yeah, absolutely. You can have doubts that come from feeding the flesh of your life, alienating yourself from the body of Christ, alienating yourself from the word, alienate yourself in prayer, and absolutely you can struggle with doubt, and it could be catastrophic. There is a doubt that creeps in and hardens your heart. So if you're in a season of doubting, let me give you three questions, and then we're going to pray and close. We're starting with the basics this week. This is basically a two-hour sermon that, for your sake, and your stomach's sake, I have cut it off at 30 minutes or whatever it is. But it's still three weeks left, and I have a lot to say, and particularly next week. If you know of someone that feels like they're really abandoning their faith, next week is the week. It is the critical point. I could say 45% of all the things you need to get and know about doubt are coming in next, next week uh, in the text there. Okay, so, so please uh, bring them th- that week. But th- ask these three questions. Have I first asked God to help me with my doubts? The one thing you don't want to do with doubt is stay prayerless. It is the tool that concretes your soul into these things. Secondly, do I have a sense of deep belonging in the church? It is God's means to strengthen your faith. It's not rocket science. It's people in the church that he has gifted by his spirit to minister to your spirit and strengthen you in the faith. That's how doubt is overcome. Not belonging in the church. And I'm not talking about connections. We have lots of connections on social media. We have lots of connections with people in our workplace. I'm talking about belonging. These are my people. These are my deepest friendships. These are the people that I belong to, and they belong to me. That is what you're after in church, not just attending, listening, and going on about your life with connections. Belonging is where it's at in the strengthening of your soul, okay? Thirdly, are the choices I've made that could be contributing, are there choices I've made that could be contributing to this season of doubt? I mean, only the Spirit of Jesus could could guide you into what that might be, a pattern of life or something that is happening in your life that could be sourcing a lot of this doubt in your life. We're going to sing a song here in just a second, and this is what we call the response time. And what that means is this, in, in, in movements of worship, Worship is important for your soul, but there's movements of worship. There's you expressing your praise to God. There's you expressing your prayers to God. There's you listening to God and you're interacting with God. And your soul is going through movements of meeting with God and his people. Well, the response time is a very important part of the service because it's the time where you have heard from God's word. And the spirit of God has probably pointed you to something in your heart. And what the spirit of God wants you to do in these next few moments is say, okay, I felt you touch on that. And I'm out of that, I'm responding back to you, and I'm submitting to you, and whatever that is. That's what response time is for. It's not just a song to endure and just think about where you're going to lunch, right? I've been there. It's time for you to deal with God, okay? And that's why I say every week, let's do business with the Lord. And it doesn't take long. God sometimes not asking for a whole lot of response. Just say it privately in your heart. Maybe you just sing the song to respond to God. But it's important that you vent that response to God. And what will end up happening is what comes back down into that is the joy of God and his presence and his, and his affirmation and maybe his cleansing, maybe his forgiveness or whatever it might be. So now this is that moment, and we're going to sing that song, this song in just a second. During this time, 
let's ask those questions. Let's do business with God. Let's, whatever he touched on in our soul, let's offer that to him, okay? Will you stand with me all across the room? Father, we just uh, thank you for your word, and, and uh, Lord, I pray you take this few moments um, and that you would speak to us, shine light into our hearts, into our lives, into your word, guide our minds, and Lord, uh, help us do business with you. Meet with us. Minister to us. Some in the room need cleansing. They know it, and they need to ask for it. And I pray you meet them right there in that room. Uh, some of them just want to send the messengers to you today, like John the Baptist did, and pray and say, okay, God, are you real? Let's start there. And just say it. And, and Lord, express those things. Do business with us, Lord. Meet with us on these grounds of prayer. In this time of response, and it's in Jesus' name I ask it.